This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, number four of a short series dealing with the second coming in its three aspects. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, so we ask you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read a portion of the Epistle to the Galatians? And we shall pick out chapter 3, starting at verse 15, and read to chapter 4, ending with verse 12. I'll repeat that. Galatians 3, starting at verse 15, and going on to chapter 4, verse 12. Those of you who have shared with us the reading of this section of the Epistle to the Galatians will see uh, that it is practically focusing our attention upon the meaning and the application of one word, and that is in verse 5 of chapter 4, the word adoption. In the um, verse 15, when the apostle said, I speak after the manner of men, that is a warning to you that he's not going to quote scripture, but he's going to refer to some manner or custom that was known to those people. He says, I'm going to speak after the manner of men. So he's speaking about what the Galatians knew. And though it be but a man's covenant, now in this particular context, he would refer to the will, the will that was made by a Galatian. It differed from the will that is made by you and me today. We could alter our wills, we can add codicils to them, we can go to the solicitor and have them scrapped. But the will was a serious matter in the days of Paul in Galatia because it meant appointing the heir and it involved the priesthood of the cults and all sorts of things that he was not permitted when once he made his will to alter it. Now that's a thing to be kept in mind. It is not usual in these meetings that I refer to any of our publications. In fact, some people think we are too modest. But I'd rather that be that way than the other. But I'm speaking not only to the little handful here in the chapel who know all about our publications, but to those of you in distant parts who are sharing in this tape-recorded ministry, I'm going this evening to read what has been printed in one of the early volumes of the Berean, partly because I can't trust my memory to be able to give you such chapter and verses I've got written in front of me, and partly because I think it might make you feel to yourself, if you've never seen the Berean Expositor, I think I'd like to see it, and we should be glad if that should be the consequence. In these three evenings that we devoted to this question of the various aspects of the second coming of Christ, I can quite understand somebody saying, well, I think you're building too much upon the difference between one word and another which is used of that second coming. The parousia or the personal presence of Christ surely is as true for our calling in heavenly places as it will be when he's on the earth. Well, supposing we say, yes, we'll agree with you, that if that's all we've got to justify us, it might be a slender sort of thread. But I want you, first of all, to come with me, before I read this portion out of the Brian Expositor, I want you to come with me to three passages of Scripture. And then I want to ask whether those three passages of Scripture can be combined together or whether they must stand separate. And the key word each time is going to be the word adoption. So, first of all, we'll go to Romans, the ninth chapter. 
And we will ask ourselves, and you will answer it from the scriptures, of whom is the apostle speaking? Well, let's start reading and see whether he gives us an answer. I say the truth in Christ I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, who for? For my brethren, who are they? My kinsmen, who are they? Kinsmen according to the flesh, who are they? Who are Israelites? Can you avoid it? Who well, yes, I don't want to. Oh no, but some people read these things and then assume that it means the church. It's not possible to assume that this means any other than Israel according to the flesh, if God means what he says. Let's go on. What are the peculiar privileges of these Israelites according to the flesh? To whom pertaineth the adoption? The very first thing that's put down. So the adoption is some special privilege that belonged to Israel according to the flesh, which is not enjoyed by anyone else. Now in the flesh, you can't compete with Israel. Of all the nations of the earth, God chose that one nation. He sent word to Pharaoh through Moses that Israel as a nation were his firstborn, although there were 70 nations already in existence before ever Israel were born, yet they were his firstborn. And we shall discover this evening before we are finished that the word adoption has reference to the birthright and the firstborn's position. Well, I'll read the remainder of this verse. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant? And the giving of the law, I suppose nearly everybody would agree that it was actually Israel at Mount Sinai, the church wasn't there, and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Well, that's certainly true of that people and that people only. Who is over all God, bless you forever, amen. So there's an adoption that belongs to Israel according to the flesh. And if no other adoption was mentioned, there's no possibility of anyone in the church gate crashing into this calling. Well, now we've already read Galatians chapter 3 and 4. Let's look at the verse again. The chapter again. He says in verse 15, verse 3, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be by the man's covenant, testament or will, Yet if it be confirmed, and that's what he had to do, get it confirmed at the notaries, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Well, what's his argument? Well, he says, you mean to tell me that you, Galatians, can make a will and nothing can alter it? And you mean to tell me that God can't make a will and nothing can alter it? So look at his argument. Verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before, confirmed, you see, before, of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul and it should make the promise of none effect. If your will is going to stand against all odds, God's will too. The law came in afterwards to expose the nature of sin and prove all men as they were, but the promise still stands unaltered and God will keep it. Well now, we haven't time to go right through, otherwise the rest of our time will be taken up. He says in verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, which is misleading. No, no, this is the pedagogue. And it was well-known custom in Rome and elsewhere 
that a child who belonged to the patrician families, the aristocracy of Rome, he was under tutors and governors. He had pedagogues to look after him as a boy. He had tutors and governors to see to his accounts and keep everything in order until he reached manhood. And then he put away the tutors and governors and stood on his own responsibility. So he says, wherefore the law was our pedagogue to bring us to Christ. But he says, after that faith is come, you're no longer under a pedagogue. So he says in verse 4, in chapter 4, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, a minor, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed by the father. Well, he said, just in the same way, you were under the elements of the world. You were under the law of Moses. You were under the prohibitions, touch not, taste not, handle not, and all the things you have to say everlastingly and bring up a child, don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other. You notice the law of Sinai is the don't. Like parents say, well, we keep on saying don't, don't we? And God says, I kept on saying don't. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. This is bringing up a child. So he says, but when the fullness of the time was come, just the same as there was a, a, a date put in the will when this child became full grown, when the fullness of the time was come, God sending forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons and got the liberty at last to say, Abba, Father, which if you read the Talmud, I hope you won't because it'd take too much out of you, you'll discover that they made a prohibition that none but a freeborn Israelite could ever use the word Abba, Father. Our Saviour used it in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's used once in the Epistle to the Romans and once here only. So now they say, Abba, Father, they are full-grown accepted sons. So it says in verse 7, Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Well now, somebody is saying to themselves possibly, now what's all this got to do with the second coming of Christ? Well, supposing we ask this question. Can there possibly be three firstborn sons in any one family? Would it say it's a rather contradiction? No, I see. So if on earth it was possible to point out someone and say that particular man going along there has got three firstborn sons, the only solution would be that he was married three times. Well, God is not under those limitations. And so we find, if you'll turn with me to the epistle to the Ephesians, a suggestion that's buried in an expression there that I think we do to ponder a bit more perhaps than we have. Chapter 2. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 3. He says in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And that mistranslation of the authorised version has caused a great number of people to write hymns and come to the conclusion that from Abel right to the last believer that's ever to be called, they're all one church. The whole family. It sounds wonderful. If you look at the revised version or any literal translation, every one of them has to tell you it doesn't say the whole family. It says every. And the next thing is this, the word family in our English comes from fabulous that was the old nanny sort of person in the Roman world. 
the tutor, the governor. It was not to do, but this is not that at all, this is the word patria. Patria. And when we're looking at this question of the adoption in a moment, we shall find that the patria, the name that's belonging to that father and his clan or his company, is the one that's given to the adopted son, although it was never his name before. So should we read it again with a little more understanding? Of whom the whole patria, no, of whom every patria in heaven or earth is named. So you see, there's one sort of gen, there's one sort of family name that's given to everyone that belongs to this patria. But there may some of them live on earth, and some of them may live in the New Jerusalem, and some of them may live far above all. So we are now moving to the third reference to adoption, Ephesians. And the first chapter, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now here's something unique. No other calling in the whole Bible is related to a period before the foundation of the world. Every reference to this expression elsewhere is since or from the foundation of the world. Come ye blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, but now God's made a move further back. This is the first time and the only time that any company of redeemed are associated with before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, which is a pity, the adoption of sons, not children, it's always the firstborn son that's in view, by Jesus Christ to himself. So now we have three different companies. Nobody in their senses, I believe, would say that Israel, according to the flesh, and the Ephesians were all one and the same people. If they say that, they'd say anything and we're wasting our time. But we have one in the middle. And they are neither Jew nor Gentile, born nor free, but one in Christ. So we have those in Galatians whose connection is not with the earthly Jerusalem, but it definitely says, Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all in Galatians. So we have three different adoptions, three different sections of God's family, three different patriots, three different firstborn positions, the one on the earth, firstborn among the nations, the one of those who are the overcomers who are in the heavenly Jerusalem, they are the firstborn there. And he, you remember in the epistle to the Hebrews, the Hebrews who were having the emphasis placed upon the heavenly calling and the heavenly Jerusalem. In chapter 12, they're warned not to be like Esau, who for one morsel of meat swapped his birthright. And that word birthright is carried over in the same chapter. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn. The same expression. Birthright and firstborn. He says you can lose this. This is an adoption which is over and above the first calling. So we have three distinct spheres of blessing. The adoption of Israel, which is on the earth. The adoption of Galatians 4 and Hebrews 11 and 12, which is in the heavenly Jerusalem. And then we have the adoption of Ephesians 1, which goes back before the foundation of the world and far above all principality and far above all heavens where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. If they do not represent three distinct spheres, 
How on earth or in heaven can you explain it otherwise? Well now I come back to this question of what is involved when we use the word adoption. And I'm going now to read this short article out of the Brian Expositor so that you may have on record in this tape recording what adoption stands for. I'm reading from volume 30 which was published in the year just half a minute I'll tell you because I don't know myself in the year 1940 so it may be out of print but you may be able to get one borrow one or something but here I'll read this it's number 15 of a series called The Powers That Be. There is a possibility that someday we shall reach the point where we shall lift out all the articles on the powers that be and put them into one small booklet. But that is not possible I- immediately. So number 15 has to do with the law of adoption. Now I'm going to start reading. I hope it won't be too dreary for you. The Apostle Paul makes several references to adoption. And it is impossible to understand these fully without some knowledge of the special meaning that attached to the term. To appreciate the full significance of the Apostles' figures in Galatians 3 and 4, they must be viewed in the light of the law of adoption, and more particularly the Greek law of adoption. At the same time, it must be remembered that Paul also uses the term in Romans, so that we must also bear in mind the Roman law on the subject. There is no law of adoption in England. Anyone is free to adopt whom he will, but the act is purely private matter. But in Roman law, adoption was a very real undertaking. Now I'm quoting. The adopted son became a member of the family, just as if he had been born of the blood of the adopter, and he was invested with all the privileges of a filius familius. I hope my Latin is all right. As a matter of fact, it was by this means that the succession amongst the Caesars was continued. It never descended from father to son. What with poison, divorce, luxury, profligacy, the surviving members of a family were few. The descent suffered constant interruption and whole families disappeared. In no case amongst the Caesars did the throne pass from father to son. Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar and was adopted from the Octavian into the Julian gens. You see, that's the patria, the name Octavia passed down. Tiberius was no relation at all to his predecessor. He was merely the son of Augustus' wife, Livia, by Tiberius, Claudius, Nero. Here we have the introduction of another family, the Claudii. Nero was the great nephew of of his predecessor Claudius, who had adopted him in the year AD 50. You see, that's the law of adoption at work. Now, adoption was of two kinds. Adoption proper and aggregation. I'll, I'll tell you when we get to the word aggregation. Adoption proper it must be remembered that the father in Roman law had absolute control over his family, possessing the same rights over his children as over his slaves. By this patria potestas, patria that is, the son was deprived of the right to own property, and the father could inflict any punishment he thought fit, even to the extent of the death penalty. 
he could also sell his son into bondage. According to the law of the twelve tables, however, a father forfeited his potestas if he sold his sons three times. Wasn't that merciful of them, friends? Three times he could sell them. For this reason, in the case of adoption, a legal ceremony took place in which the father went through the process of selling his son three times. So they did on themselves, you see, by doing it like that ceremony. And the son passed over completely to the potestas of the adopter. It couldn't be done more than three times. In later times, the cumbersome ceremony was substituted by a simple declaration before the governor. Well now, the adoption by aggregation, when the person to be adopted was his own master, he was adopted by the form called aggregation, from the word to ask. Since in this case, the adopter, the adopted and the people were asked. The law demanded that the adopter should be at least 18 years older than the adopted, for says Justinian, adoption imitates nature, and it seems unnatural that a man should be older than his father. Adoption was called, in law, capitas, diminutia, which so far annihilated the pre-existing personality who underwent it, that during many centuries it operated as an extinction of debts. You were so completely a new creature by being adopted into that family that even your debts vanished, to the disappointment, of course, of those who lost their money. But there's a little picture there of salvation, isn't there? Now then, the effect of adoption was fourfold. First, a change of family the adopted person was transferred from one gens to another. Secondly, a change of name. The adopted person acquired a new name. You see, the more you know this, the more you begin to see in the book of the Revelation, one of the churches of the overcomers, I will give them my new name. A new name. They would know what it was meant, a little bit more than some of our commentators have done. He assumed the name of his adopter, and modified his own by the termination uh, I Annas. Thus, when Caius Octavius of the Octavian Gens was adopted by Julius Caesar, he became Caius Julius Caesar Octavianus. You see, the Octavianus goes on. He's got the patria, he's got the name of the one into whose gens he's now been adopted. Paul alludes to the patria potestas, the absolute power of the father of the family, in Galatians 4, when he speaks of the child differing nothing from a slave. You see? He meant what he said. And goes on to say, thou art no longer a slave, but a son. Paul also alludes to the tutelage, in Galatians 3 and 4, where we have such phrases as kept in ward, tutor to bring us to Christ, under guardians and stewards, children held in bondage. So far as the ceremony was concerned, the difference between the transferring of, son, of a son into slavery and his becoming a member of the family was very slight. In one case, the adopter said, I claim this man as my slave. In the other, I claim this man as my son. The form was almost the same. It was the spirit that differed. If the adopter died and the adopted son claimed the inheritance, 
the father had to testify to the fact that he was the adopted heir. Furthermore, the law required corroborative evidence. One of the seven witnesses is called. I was present, he says, at the ceremony. It was I who held the scales and struck them with the ingot of brass. It was an adoption. I heard the words of the vindication. And I say, this person was claimed by the deceased, not as a slave, but as a son. Now you'll find that as a bearing on the passage in Romans. Bearing all this fact in mind, can we not feel something of the thrill with which the Roman Christian would read the words of Romans 8? Ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and if children then heirs. You put yourself back into the days of the law of Rome and adoption and listen to that in the New Testament concerning this high calling. <clears throat> it is not so much the Holy Spirit addressing himself here to the human spirit in confirmation, but rather the joint witness of the Holy Spirit and the spirit of the believer to the same blessed fact. So this man gives his testimony that this is true. Closely associated with the law of adoption was that of the Roman will. The Praetorian will was put into writing and fastened with seals of seven witnesses. And when you open the book of the Revelation, chapter 5, there's a seven-sealed book, and the seals have to be broken. No accident, you see. It was all in harmony with the times in which the things were written. And there is probably a reference to this type of will in Ephesians 1, 13, 14. Now, this is a passage we're supposed to know. <clears throat> in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. W. E. Ball translates the latter part of this passage until the ransoming accomplished by the act of taking possession of the inheritance. It's actually referring to a part of the ceremony. Now an expansion of that. When a slave was appointed heir, although expressly emancipated by the will which gave him this inheritance, his freedom commenced not upon the making of the will, nor even immediately upon the death of the testator, but from the moment when he took certain legal steps which were described as entering upon the inheritance. This is the ransoming accomplished by the act of taking possession. You know this how it says in the Old Testament? about possessing your possessions. Well, he is taking possession. He is stepping into the position that God has given. In the last words of the passage, in to the praise of his glory, now you know in Ephesians 3, that is echoed three times. The will of the Father, that we shall be the praise of his glory, the redemptive work of the Son, and the seal of the Spirit, unto the praise of his glory, so this go on, this comment goes on to say, 
that that words the praise of his glory, there is an allusion to a well-known Roman custom. The emancipated slaves who attended the funeral of their emancipator were the praise of his glory. Testamentary uh, emancipation was so fashionable a form of posthumous ostentation I'm getting tangled up a bit, friends, but still I'm managing. I'll say that again. This idea of just making a testamentary emancipation of a number of slaves because you couldn't do anything else, you know you were on your deathbed, meant to say that you'd have a proper or magnificent funeral. And it had to be legislated against because it began to run riot. That's the reason why all the gondolas in Venice are all black, because they vied with one another to such an extent that some of the families went bankrupt in all the lavishness they did to outdo one another. This is another sample of the same thing. So I'll read that again. Testamentary emancipation was so fashionable a form of posthumous ostentation, the desire to be followed to the grave by a crowd of freed men wearing the cap of liberty was so strong that very shortly before the time when Paul wrote, the legislator had expressly limited the number of slaves that an owner might manumit by will. Now that's a, a bit out of Roman and, and Galatian law with regard to adoption. I have a feeling that a good many folk would have never heard that before. They were simply invested the word adoption with some easygoing adoption that we have in our present uh, system, but it's not. You see, it's something far deeper, far more wonderful, far richer, especially when retranslated in the terms of the truth of the gospel. In all these things, there is necessarily more than one aspect of a remembrance. The bearing of the Old Testament teaching of the kinsman redeemer and of the Hebrew law must never be forgotten. But for the moment we are limiting ourselves to the laws in force during the period covered by the Acts. Many passages like Romans 8 and Galatians 3 and 4 are given a much fuller meaning when we are able to understand the allusions to customs and procedure that were everywhere in vogue at the time they were written. Well, that is number 15 of a series that went on another, I think another 15, on the powers that be gathering light from customs that were well known to those who had the epistles written to them but may not be so well known to us in the present day. Well, now I have to come back after that breathless attempt to read out of the Brian Expositor. I hope I haven't given you a bad advertisement. Some of you, after having all that read, you say, well, if that's the Brian Expositor, save me from it. Well, now I'm only going to say to you, or will you get it and see whether there are other things in it just as good, if not better? And it would do us a great deal of help, friends, if you who are listening and benefiting by this witness would become subscribers, I don't say donators, no, subscribers to the Brian Expositor, because the more we had to print, the cheaper they would turn out to be, and instead of having to subsidise it, we would might find, to our breathless uh, surprise, it begin to pay its own way. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, I mustn't go on like this because I should be told that I mustn't advertise our work. It's not the thing we do. Well, now let's come back to where we started. The second coming of Christ in some form or another is the hope of every true believer. 
Even if you spiritualize it away and say, oh, he's not coming in person, he comes in our hearts, the second coming of Christ cannot be ruled out. But I think nearly every one of us have seen that it cannot be thus spiritualized. Now, you remember, his speech will stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And if you attempted to spiritualize the Mount of Olives, it's so many furlongs or miles or feet from Jerusalem on the east. Uh, you have a job with that, you see. And isn't it wonderful that our Saviour led his disciples to the Mount of Olives and while he was speaking he was received up and those standing by saw an angel that said, why do you look up into heaven? This same Jesus, whom you have seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner. No words can be more explicit. Well, are you waiting for his feet to stand upon the Mount of Olives? Well, if you are, you're going to enter into an earth which will be a very different place from what it is now. There will be no more wars. There will be no more strife. The desert shall blossom as a rose. And believe me, if it wasn't a heavenly inheritance, it would be a wonderful place to be in. But then you see, we discover that there is a heavenly Jerusalem and a heavenly country and a better country and a better resurrection specially given us in the epistle to the Hebrews, that although Abraham believed God and entered into his inheritance on the land and walked through the length of it and the breadth of it and it was a literal piece of geography, yet he was quite willing to be a tent dweller all his life and never own a bit of it except a burial ground because he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Well, when that man's hope is realised, he will not be on earth because he was looking for the heavenly Jerusalem. And where your hope directs your heart, there your hope will be realized. So there's a second sphere of blessing. And just as we found adoption, meant there was one class of people on the earth over the others, that's one nation over all the other nations, so we have now in the heavenly section, far above angels. Far above angels. Only angels, you remember. A numerable company of angels, no principalities and powers, no, not yet. They don't come yet. You have to wait for the third sphere. And the third sphere is heavenly places. Now you might say to me, oh, but the word heavenly occurs all over the New Testament. Oh, certainly. But the expression, en tois eparadios, that is to say, in the heavenlies, occurs only in one epistle never occurs anywhere else. And here we have it in Ephesians 1. I'll read it again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ. Well, if you say to me, where are those heavenly places? I'll say, I don't know, except what God has told me. But in the same chapter, he does say something more. He speaks about the mighty power which was wrought in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And where is that? Well, it's far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Well, that's pretty high, isn't it? And if you look at chapter 4, you're not left with any doubt. 
It says in verse 8, wherefore he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up where? Far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Well, you say, what's that got to do with you? It's telling you where Christ is in heavenly places, but it didn't, t- didn't say that you were there. Oh, but friends, you made a mistake. You haven't read chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, that quickened us together with Christ, by gracious aid, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together. Not merely stand together but sit together, where? In heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So already, potentially, we're there. Of course, really and physically, we're here. But that's our position, nothing less than that. But to be where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And this is such an extraordinary revelation of truth that I have been called a blasphemer by somebody who's actually been in this chapel because he said nobody ought to utter such things. And yet it's in the Word. It's in the book. I didn't write, friends, I didn't write the epistle to the Ephesians. You don't think that, do you? Well, here it says, for you and me, if we are in this calling, that we are not only raised with him, but we are actually seen by God to be seated with him, where he sits now, at the right hand of God. And then it says in chapter 3, verse 8, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. They are not riches that you can find all over the scriptures. They are riches which are unsearchable and only can be known by revelation. And to make all men see, now that word to make all men see is not quite good enough. Photizer, P-H-O-T, which comes in our word photograph. This means to enlighten, and it's the same word that we have in chapter 1, when it says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Enlightened. So we'll put it back again, shall we? To enlighten all, as to what is, now our version says the fellowship, the revised text reads the dispensation, to enlighten all as to what is the dispensation of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. So there we have heavenly places where Christ sits, where our hope centers. And so we'll turn for our final reference to Colossians chapter 3. He now says, If ye then be risen with Christ, if, He's not questioning it. You see, the word if sometimes questions a thing, doubts it. But sometimes the word if confirms it. It's an argument. Oh, if that, then this, you see. If he then be risen. Assuming that you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Well, what are they? Where Christ sitting. On the right hand of God. Well, why should I set my affection on things above if it's nothing to do with me? Where my treasure is, my heart will be also. Where my heart is, my treasure will be also. Doesn't matter which way you say it, it comes to the same thing. 
So this is where my calling is, is, and my hope is fixed. Set your affection. The word affection doesn't mean our word affection. It's rather the idea of a person's bent, as we say today. Somebody has a bent for music. Somebody has a bent for language. Somebody goes round the bend and it doesn't mean that. They think you are a bit like that if you believe this truth. But it says here, let it be that somebody who makes a rude remark about you would say, well, you know, he's got his mind set on things above. That's the idea. That this person's whole bent is where Christ sits at the right hand of God and everything else falls into its place. For he died, not you are dead, you died, and your life is hid. Ephesians said this was this mystery was hid in God. Colossians 2 says the mystery was hid in God. It says, and you belong to it, your life is hid. Hid with Christ in God. But one day it's going to be revealed. One day it's going to be manifested. When Christ, who is your life, shall be made manifest, here's this word epiphania. This is the second coming of Christ so far as the church of the one body is concerned. Then shall ye also be manifested with him in glory. And it's the same word appearing or manifestation that Titus says that we should live looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So here we have three aspects of the second coming. Matthew 24, in the days of the setting up of the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, 1 Thessalonians 4, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed at the last trump. The apocalypse aspect in the book of the Revelation, particularly with those who shall have the position of being overcomers in the heavenly Jerusalem, and those like Abraham who were willing to be tent dwellers and didn't forfeit their inheritance like Esau for one morsel of meat just down here for the time being, and then the position far above all that belongs to the church of the one body, which is the peculiar ministry that is associated with here, us at this chapel. We didn't put ourselves into this calling. Some people think we are boasting, but that's absurd. For even we wouldn't be so silly as to say we chose ourselves in Christ before the foundation of the world, because that's nonsense. We only wake up in our day to find evidences from the word of God that it is so. And none can rob us of it. And so I commend to you this series, a short one, on the various phases of the second coming and the confirmation this evening that there are three spheres of blessing that must be inherited by three different companies and the one key word there is the word adoption. And so I leave it with you and pray that we may not only be interested superficially in the various aspects of the coming. Or that we may say, isn't it interesting what they did in the days of Rome and the Galatian Greek will? But let's say, isn't it marvellously interesting that God has done the same for us in his great measure? That he has taken us out of our darkness and put us into his family of faith. And we bear the name of our father, that patria. We now can put that to the end of our name. We are belonging to him in a sense that even greater than if we'd been born in the family, because I, had, I didn't get so far as to tell you that, that a father 
could do to his ordinary son in the flesh what he couldn't do to his son by adoption. He could get rid of his own son, but he could never do that to the son who was once adopted. He had a fuller claim upon his father than his own flesh and blood. That was the law. And that's true in grace. What a position we have. And so we may well, as we started this meeting, sing of that promise by which the believer is sealed. Foretaste of glory revealed.